This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. And welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It is, uh, it's fall, officially, I think. Well, maybe not officially. I, I don't know if somebody needs to see their shadow or whatnot, but uh, colors are starting to turn, temperatures dropping. Does it feel like fall for you yet? It does. Yeah, we've uh, we've definitely started to see the leaves changed up in Sister Bay. Um, don't worry, peepers yet. It's not like anywhere close to peak, but we're starting to see the colors. That's true. I'm hoping that we have a good long stretch of fall colors this year. Last year, it's so funny. Door County was voted like the number one place in the U.S. to see the fall colors by USA Today. And everybody was talking about that, super excited about the fall colors. And then we got a long stretch of really high winds and stormy weather that knocked all the leaves off the tree before we even got to see them in, in full pop. So our fall was was really short and kind of sad last year. I'm hoping that we get to have a fun, bright fall season this year. Yeah, that's the, the thing that kind of stinks about door county sometimes is that those shoulder seasons are just such a blip if you don't hit them just right so spring always is like oh it's spring which lasts about a week and a half up here and then in the fall same thing like if you there's those years when it drags out and when it drags the wrong wrong word because i love it but like when you get like that still have the leaves on the trees all the way through october it's just so much nicer helps your mood going into the long winter Right. So uh, we're going to talk a lot about COVID today. Uh, but before we do, just a little bit of some short updates on some things. We had talked about a, a potential preliminary partnership between the Ridges and the Door County Land Trust, I believe, last week. And uh, walk me through this a little bit. Things are still very preliminary. Uh, but what have you gleamed from the the talks that they've had so far about potentially uh, looking at joining these organizations together? Well, it's it's been interesting to follow this and, and talk to people about it because in, in some sense, it's a it's kind of surprising that they came out and just announced that they were having the discussion publicly before making a decision because they don't they don't really have to. <laughs> um, a lot of times something like this might just be discussed at the board level and they come out and they announce, hey, we've decided to merge. Um, but I think these two organizations, understandably, uh, the Ridges having been a lot around for 80 years and then the Land Trust for 25 to 30 years um, with big membership bases, putting it out there to gather feedback and and hear from people before they move forward, um, I think is a good step in, of transparency here for organizations that people are really tied to, really care about. Um, they, I did talk to Linda Brooks and Donna DiNardo, the president of the Ridges and the Land Trust, respectively, again this week. And they have decided, they were initially aiming to like figure this out and make a decision on whether or not to merge by the end of this year. However, they've pushed that back to kind of giving themselves a March 1st deadline to figure this out, in part due to feedback from some people who thought that was a, a, a fast timetable, and in part due to the fact that the Ridges does not have a director right now. Steve Leonard um, left the organization over the summer. Uh, he announced that he was leaving in May and then left later in the summer. So they don't have a director to kind of handle this process. So it's it falls on the board members. That's another part of the delay of like, that's just a lot of time for a volunteer board to, or 
that's not a lot of time for a lot volunteer board to figure it out. So pushing it back to March gives them more time to to get all the ducks in a row and and do the due diligence to find out if it's a good idea, if it's a good idea financially, if it's a good fit culturally to organizations. Yeah, there, there's a lot to to think about, and I'm excited to see how how these discussions kind of shake out because uh, mergers or, or acquisitions like this, depending on the the route that they decide to go for, uh, can be mutually beneficial for both. Like it, there there's been no talk, I don't think, at this point about whether or not like the ridges would become a land trust property or if the ridges would keep its identity and become like a home base for the land trust. I feel like all of those things are still kind of up in the air. So I'll be interested to see uh, if they decide to move forward exactly how things shake out and what the future for the two organizations will look like. That's probably the biggest question. You you said the word identity there. And there are some other long-term um, devotees, if you will, of the Ridges who do fear that they could lose their identity in this. Um, that is one thing that both Brooks and Donardo said they are very watchful of in this process and creating, if they decide to move forward, creating a process and an organization in which the Ridges maintains that identity. It wouldn't change its name. It would still look, feel, operate as the Ridges. The Cook Albert Fuller Center, which is their nature center that they opened in 2015, would still be called that. Nothing would change there. Um, large. What they have said is that this would essentially mean a change in the tax ID the name on the tax ID number and things like that. Um, but to all outward appearances, donors would still, at least in the discussions they've had so far and the things that have identified to this point, donors wouldn't just be giving to an umbrella organization that could use it however they see fit. You could still earmark it like, hey, I want to I want to donate to educational programming at the Ridges or I want to do- donate to um, the capital campaign for the Ridges or I want to donate to land trust purchases down the road. So that that would all be possible. So they they would try to take some safeguards to make sure the fundraising apparatus will be there. But you would potentially combine under one director and one development director and kind of share some of those resources. So that's where it, it stands right now. Um, there, I have seen on social media some people voicing some strong opposition to the combination, but I think it's that's healthy. I mean, people should voice their concerns in this and make sure that they vet this 100%. And maybe it turns out that it's they don't go forward with it or that it doesn't fit or it doesn't work or that they just want to remain independent. But I, I applaud the two organizations for even looking into it because um, right. one thing, Door County does have a ton of nonprofits. And if there are synergies in them or redundancies, I think it's it's smart to try and consolidate talent organizations yeah. more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and like you said there, it's just, you know, people coming out with with criticisms or oppositions. It, it seems like both of these organizations are looking for community input at this stage too. So it's just another nice part of the part of the process as they're moving forward, trying to gauge internally how things work, but also what community expectations are. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else on this story as it unfolds before we move into talking about the state of COVID-19? Uh, no, on the Ridges front, we'll just keep monitoring that. And if it's I, I, the reason, I guess, to me, why it's an interesting story is just because of the, the large number of nonprofits up here. I think however this shakes out, it's going to be interesting to watch and educational for a lot of different organizations um, in terms of how, how it will either come to fruition or they decide not to. Yeah, for sure. If, it, if it's a successful, uh, if it's a successful process, then maybe we see this set a precedent for other organizations. And maybe like you said, uh, organizations start to combine and become stronger moving forward. We'll, Mm -hmm. We'll see how it shakes out.
One more thing uh, that I wanted to talk about before we jump into COVID-19 numbers. Uh, there, There is a potential affordable housing project that's being looked at up in Liberty Grove, correct, Miles? Yeah, there's um, there's a couple of things that Town of Liberty Grove has been looking at. One, they bought the Valley Motel, um, I think it was last year, uh, an, an old motel that had fallen into disrepair. They bought that property, tore down the motel. They've been looking at potentially doing a housing development there, like a 10-unit rental type thing. Um, that... They're still looking at the potential for that. But they also bought five acres adjacent to the Liberty Grove Town Hall for, I believe, about $39,000 last week. The uh, That will that now gives the town of Liberty Grove about 50 acres that they own be- between Waters End Road and Hill Road. Um, and for those not as familiar with the northern part of the community, that's Liberty Grove, but that is also only a couple of miles from Sister Bay. So it is a little bit out in the country, but not too far from the the more populated area of Northern Door. So the idea has been for a long time, John Lowry and and that Liberty Grove Town Board have wanted to entice somebody to come in and, and do something on the affordable housing front. And what the feeling with this purchase was is it might give them a little more opportunity to do something there, either on a like rental apartment type scale, a small small scale with that, or with smaller homes for purchase there. So they are hoping to be part of a tour that Door County Economic Development Corporation is organizing to bring developers to potential sites around the county where they might be family homes or rental apartments. So town's still, even in the midst of COVID, still looking at the ever-present housing problem in Door County. Yeah, I know. We've got the uh, we've got the high water crisis and the, the pandemic going on. We almost forgot about the other things that uh, we've been looking at over the course of several years. Uh, this, this is a good thing. I, I'm excited to hear that there's some more movement on this. The last uh, successful affordable housing project that I think we talked about was probably the old school down in Sturgeon Bay by the skate park. Yeah, and that one's still in limbo. Um, not a dead deal, but they uh, the, the last I checked in, they had not gotten some of the tax credits they were hoping to get to move on that project. So they weren't giving up on that, but they were still waiting for another round potentially. Um, so that one's in limbo. And, you know, as as you and I have both done, we've been in the, the house hunt in Door County and there's just not that, like even the last time we, we did a, a really in-depth podcast about this, I think a year ago, um, it's only gotten worse. Uh, when I- it, Absolutely. When Deb Fitzgerald came on board here at the Pulse and she started looking at housing, she's like, where do you find anything? And she is not someone who is naive to the county. She had lived here um, 15, 16 years ago. But then even coming back, she said it was a drastic change. I had friends calling me when they looked to move back here. And they said, how did you ever find anything? You said you looked at all these houses. And I'm like, well, I looked at basically anything that was made out of sticks <laughs> for under $300,000 in Door Count, Northern Door. But it's now when you, you pull up the searches, there's not much there. Well, that's the thing too. I mean, you talk about Deb saying that it's changed so much in 15 years. It's changed a ton in one year. Yep. Uh, you, you look back at the market at the beginning of 2019, and if you're looking up in the peninsula, there were at least you know anywhere from 
25 to 60 homes in that like 250 zone, which is not affordable, but is, you know, at least something uh, up in the peninsula. And if if you look now, there's nothing under that. Like I, I've literally done searches that have brought me back zero results because the same houses that were going for 230 last year are going for over 300 right now with no change in anything except for, I guess, the market specifically right here. So it it it's been wild to see prices go up to see uh to see your purchasing power going down you get less house for more this year than you did last year just in my anecdotal research of the market but uh it it's it's definitely at the forefront of my mind right now and if anything that we can do to to push more affordable housing up into the peninsula i think is a good thing yeah it it is and i've talked to a lot of folks in real estate and it's definitely something they're seeing and you would have When COVID first hit, I thought, okay, this might provide some sort of market correction in real estate. And in fact, it went the other way because once once people realized they were looking at um, limited social movement and things like that and and social distancing, a lot of people flocked out of the cities. People pulled houses off the market, which took away inventory. And then there was a demand for, and we've talked about this, I, I believe on the podcast, there was a demand for vacant land for people who maybe just wanted to come up and camp or put a camper on that land or people who just finally realized, you know what, I want out of the city. Um, I'm going to move to Door County permanently and either buy a home or make my vacation home my permanent residence, at least for the time being. So that created um, even more demand for what was existing. So that pushes prices up. And then you have like the what's a safe investment when you're worried about the stock market kind of thing, even though that bounced back, people started looking at property like they always do. So if you and I don't disparage Airbnb for this, but I don't think there's I don't think anybody could can deny this any longer that um, the the rise in popularity of the vacation home rental market and the ease of doing so has led to more and more of those moderately priced homes getting pulled off the market and put into the vacation rental pool, which is further squeezing people trying to get a foot in the door. Right. Well, Miles, why don't we take a break? And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the uh, COVID-19 numbers in Door County. We have uh, broken 200 cases and our active cases are at the highest that they have been throughout this whole process. So uh, we have some updates on that. We will jump into that right after the break. Find out how a dollar bill ends up on the ceiling of a bar. Discover the best routes for viewing fall color or an overlooked hike. And find out what makes one woman dedicate her life to preserving Door County's historical icons. Get all of this and more in the autumn issue of Door County Living Magazine, featuring in-depth stories, tips, and profiles from the team that knows the peninsula better than anyone else. You can pick up your free copy on newsstands everywhere in Door County. Okay, we are back. So, Miles, uh, we talked last week about the active cases in Door County. I believe that they were in the mid-30s when we had talked last, and that was the highest number of active cases that we've had so far. Uh, That number has increased now at this point. Uh, So we are once again reporting on the highest number of active cases that we've had throughout this whole process. Uh, The number of total cases, though it's not a super important number, it is something to note, has broken 200. Um, And the increase that we've seen since the beginning of September has been notable. So walk me through 
through what we're looking at in terms of COVID-19 right now. Well, just a few minutes ago, the state announced that uh, Wisconsin had 2,000 positive test results for the first time um, today. So the highest number of new cases in any single day. Uh, Door County has risen precipitously since September 1st. Um, We are now at 204 positive cases total and then 45 active. But the good news is um, not only have we not seen any new deaths, we have not seen very many hospitalizations at all. Dr. Jim Heiss uh, attended the Health and Human Services Committee meeting, uh, the Door County Government Health and Human Services Committee this week, and noted that people who are coming in now are experiencing milder cases and are not requiring hospitalization. They're, the way he termed it is they feel really crappy for a couple of days, and then they're okay and they can deal with the symptoms at home, but they do end up with positive tests. He did say something interesting. I, th- I thought he was going to take that down the road of, hey, so this isn't as bad as we thought. But one thing he said is it could be attributable to the widespread use of masks now so that if I can try and describe this as best and simply as I can, generally uh, think of the viral load that you inhale. And so if you are not wearing a mask and somebody exposes you to COVID-19 and they're talking to you and everything's coming unfiltered, you think of how much of the virus you actually inhale and get into your system versus if you're wearing a mask, you're just blocking a chunk of that. So maybe you still get some of it in because masks aren't foolproof, but you get less of the virus, which means you get a less theory being a less severe case of the virus. So And then if both people are wearing masks and one of them had COVID and spread it to you, there's even more filtration. He did note that one of the first people to die of the virus in Door County had been exposed to like a full day with a um, in a vehicle with just getting dose after dose after dose of the virus. So they came in and they were so sick right at the outset. Um, So a little difference and some evidence maybe that and now that's anecdotal you know that's not a scientific study but uh that's dr jim heiss the chief medical officer for door county medical center um just on on the effect that mass might be having yeah it it's it's an interesting thing to think about and i i should say like not that not that it needs to be said but neither of us have uh health backgrounds at all. Um, so I wouldn't take what we're saying as science, but, uh, it, I guess it stands to reason that if, if you were to inhale more viral particulates, there would be more of the virus in your system to wreak havoc, but also to reproduce that kind of thing. Whereas if you only have a little bit, uh, you might still be sick, but that might not have the same staying power, the same potency uh, at a lower dosage, which is weird because like you'll hear people say that like, oh, I had a little cold last week, Uh, but you never hear people say I had a lot of cold last week. You know what I mean? So we don't really (laughs) think of it in that way. We might say like I had a really bad flu, but you wouldn't say like I had a lot of flu in me, which maybe (laughs) is more accurate. Um, But that's I mean, that's a good thing. I I think that uh, the, the mask usage that we've done so far is uh, if it has positive side effects like that, then I think that that's a good thing. Uh, anecdotally, my allergies have been really great this this whole time. Uh, I did barely had anything in the spring or the summer. A little bit now as you know the temperature is dropping, but I always get that. Uh, and I attribute a lot of that to A, staying in my house, but B, when I'm out and about, I'm not getting dosage of pollen or ragweed or whatever because I'm wearing my mask outside. Well, and another in- impact of that 
of the social distancing and the mask wearing, uh, I did talk to another doctor um, this week who said that they saw the instances of the flu basically cratered once social distancing went into effect because now the it had been a particularly bad flu season last winter. And then once everyone started social distancing, it just stopped it in its tracks. And right. there there has been um, some evidence that, I guess uh, I may have mentioned this previous weeks, but the flu generally starts in South America and then migrates its way north. And South America have seen like a, a much weaker um, flu season this year because people are just largely distanced. They're not flying from country to country. And then they're not flying into the US or going to South America and bringing it back to the US. And so there is some speculation that maybe the flu won't be as bad this winter and won't be as heavily seeded because it just will never have that chance to to migrate north. However, that doesn't mean that people should be complacent about it. The hospitals are really pushing people to get their flu shots. Um, there's a bunch of flu clinics coming up beginning September 28th that Door County Medical Center is putting on for people to come in and get their shots by appointment only. You can find that information on our website. We'll be pushing it out in Pulse Picks so that people know all those dates and times. Um, they're really trying to make a push because the last thing the hospital wants is to be buried in, in the flu and then have the COVID cases continue to rise and maybe get hit with a bunch of that at the same time. The I, I, A doctor I spoke to, speaking of the Northeast region today, um, said people don't realize that even in a bad flu season, it can be difficult to find hospital beds for people with serious illness. So mm. you, you might see some of the hospitals in Green Bay actually fill up even without COVID. So he was just articulating the point that like there, there is so little wiggle room in the hospital system when you hit those bad times. But right now, our hospital capacity is we have a lot of hospital beds available. It's about 64% of the beds in northeast Wisconsin are full right now. So about 30 some percent available. Um, and that northeast re region includes parts across the Bay, Door County and Green Bay. I did ask this gentleman what you know, is it appropriate to include that whole region when Door County is so, um, you know, we're isolated on this peninsula. We're so unique in that sense that really like a, a hospital of, you know, Kanto being full or not full isn't on the surface wouldn't seem like it matters much to us, but we all kind of use Green Bay as our hub hospital. So if you get pretty severe cases, both those areas are sending those patients to Green Bay anyway. So it is, that's why they look at that as like one whole region. So speaking of masks, it is the 18th as this podcast will be airing on Friday. Uh, so we are 10 days away from September 28th, which is when the statewide mask mandate is set to expire. What what do we know right now about what's going to happen after that date? Um, well, as of right now, that that ends it, right? I think you would see most businesses in Northern Door County, at least, um, just continue requiring masks. But there is... Uh, been some some fear of that ending and then like okay now you're gonna have we go back to this and the businesses don't have that mandate to stand behind again and then they have to deal like businesses are still dealing with customers being jerks i talked to somebody this week who their daughter was working at a popular fish creek restaurant and got reamed out by a customer who was ticked that he was told he had to wear a mask to eat at that restaurant and then threatened to um urinate all over the bathroom if, he, if they ask him to do that. Um, it's, I just, I don't understand that mindset <laughs> and Me I, neither. I can that's, never understand it. Well, um, that's a creative threat though. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. Um, so there's still, there's still that going on right now, but 
Um, and I think that could get worse than if you just take away the mandate. Um, there has been some talk. The Health and Human Services Committee did forward a recommendation that the admin committee of Door County Government take up this issue and discuss extending a, at least a local mask order. Um, I don't know if that's going to get any traction. Uh, I know that uh, the county has expressed hesitancy on doing that before. Sue Powers does not want to be asked to issue it from the health department because then everything gets directed at her as an unelected official blamed for putting in an order and then you at risk lawsuits. Whereas if the county government were to pass it, you know, then it's it's more of a, a legislative action reaction right. by elected officials. Um, but there's still a chance Tony Evers, uh, Governor Evers would extend it. So we'll yeah, we'll see what happens. I don't know if the if he extended it, if there would be a immediate lawsuit from the Republican legislature to try and stop that again. I don't know if anybody wants to get in that entanglement this close to the election, but we'll see. Yeah. And, and I think that regardless of what happens, I don't think you'll see a huge change up here in Door County. Like like we've talked about before and like you briefly mentioned there, the, the biggest thing about this up here in Door County is that it gives businesses a little bit of support. Uh, to to be able to enforce their mask mandates, but e- even if even if it were to end on the twenty eighth, I don't think that you're going to see a ton of Door County businesses just you know throw their masks away and say, "All right, we're back to normal." Um, masking was no. was a big thing up here before the the mask mandate, and I think it will continue to be uh, up until a vaccine is released and afterwards. And this just this week, just yesterday, you saw more evidence of just the the seriousness and the caution that local businesses are taking. Um, Pheasant Park Resort had a couple of employees test positive. Um, They have 58 units. They, you know, basically all their employees are going to be in contact with each other at some point. So they're all going to be exposed. So they had to, they are scrambling, they are closed for a couple of days and they were scrambling to relocate all of their guests into other resorts. Um, And so they didn't, they weren't forced to do that, but that was the the caution and prudence that they decided to take. Throughout Sister Bay, you've seen a number of businesses uh, closed restaurants closed their doors over the last couple of weeks, whether it was the Boathouse, Sister Bay Bowl, um, just for temporary periods. And now you have, I think by, if my count is correct, Grassy's Grill, Analog Coffee, and the Northern Grill have all closed for the season already, um, just out of an abundance of caution and exhaustion with, with dealing with this, with dealing with customers. Um, and just to just to be safe. And I, I think the, that caution will continue throughout Northern Door. Right. Uh, just to, to wrap up here, Miles, kind of a, a personal question. So we were talking about flu rates and, and how masks have impacted that kind of stuff. Have you ever in your life before this year worn a face mask when you were sick and had to go out in public? I think the only time I would have ever worn a face mask for this year would have been um, probably, I think I've done that a couple of times when going into a nursing home or into a hospital there visiting a, a sick friend or somebody maybe battling cancer. And that I don't recall ever having done that. Do you think that that will change in the years following this? If you, you know, have a, a stuffy nose or you feel a, a sore throat coming on, do you, do you feel like you are more likely to wear a mask out and about? Do you think that the 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 cultural, uh, maybe the stigma has gone away in a way that we're going to see that more often? I, I guess not from my perspective, I feel like as somebody who has a dust allergy, I've I've kind of always got a little bit of something going on. So I, I can see myself continuing to wear a mask in the future just because, you know, I, I never really thought about how much my illness could affect other people around me just out and about. And it's definitely something that has, has changed for me. I'm just wondering what you think. 
Well, I think culturally you see that in some Asian countries where they've been hit by this before. Um, they're very quick to start donning masks if they're ill. And then also in African countries, um, which have handled this whole situation incredibly well, mainly based on their experience with other viruses and things like Ebola. Um, for me, I think I, at least in the short term, it's always hard to say like, this will change everything forever because, you know, everyone was really nice to each other after 9-11 for a while. I mean, even both houses of Congress stood on the front steps of Congress and, and saying, God bless America together the day after. I can't fathom the Republican and Democratic parties being able to come together to even do that um, or to even say sunshine is good. I don't, I don't know that they would agree on that. Um, so I don't, it's hard to say like anything would, would stay in place long term. But I do think I, I think that might be one thing is that at least when people are are very sick, they might start doing that. I think people might be more likely to stay home if they have that option. You know, as much as we like to say like, hey, stay home if you're sick and that's what people will do in the future. It's like that's kind of a point of privilege part of society that can say that if you're on salary or um, you have an understanding boss. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people, if they stay home from work, that means they just don't get their hourly wage. And right. then they're just a day behind. Most of America doesn't have the luxury to to make decisions based on health. They have to make it based on um, staying in their homes and staying in their apartment and feeding their themselves or their children. So I think that would overwhelm the the health impetus there, unless there was some other thing pumped into the system to to make that easier. Right. Um, but for me, you asked me specifically. In the short term, I definitely would be. In the long term, I I hope that in the year or so ahead that there are some pretty good studies about how the mask worked or didn't work or what what mattered in this situation we're going going through. I mean, for all the economic pain that people have suffered, all the mental anguish people have suffered, and in some cases for people who did not get to see loved ones in their dying days and things, it's a, an unimaginable um, pain and anguish. Right. I hope it's worth something, and I hope we get some good data and something moving forward that that saves some pain and anguish in the long run for people by maybe we, we learn a lot about hygiene. I think we are. There's all these things that I could say like anecdotally, I think, are correct. I do think the masks help. I do think the, the cleanliness helps. I do think the distancing helps and staying home helps. But getting some hard data on it and that we won't know for five or 10 years probably. But right. then we can actually start to make some policy decisions based on that instead of having political fights about pretty minor things right now. And I say like with the masking thing, my, my mom has Alzheimer's and had a heart attack and she goes to rehab and sits on a bike and wears her mask and she's <sighs> fine. So I the, the mask debate and oh, this is killing my life. Like I, I have a hard time with that. But sure. Um, and and even not knowing dramatically what the evidence says, like I, I can feel pretty good about doing that. But yeah, for a long-term decision, like I hope we're evaluating the heck out of all the data we're getting. Yeah, well, at the very least, I think that we can agree that it's going to be a long time before either of us feel comfortable shaking hands or standing too close to one another. Uh, I, I got a feeling it's going to be a couple of years before I'm like, oh yeah, we used to shake hands. Remember that? Uh, even even yeah. the elbow touching that I've been doing just is rubbing me the wrong way. I'm like, I just I don't want to touch anybody. I, I, I do the fist bump or the elbow. It is, I still get occasionally people who just come up and, and come up to shake your hand and that that's still kind of, that's become like sort of a, a shocking thing to, thing to me. Um, you ever just give them the finger guns back? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wonder, that that might change. I mean, the fist bump is fine. I, f I feel cooler doing a fist bump anyway. That's fair. I, I would just rather not touch any part of anybody's body for a while. I think that I'm just going to keep my hands to myself until, uh, 
I don't know, maybe till I'm 30. We'll see. <laughs> so with that, Miles, uh, why don't we wrap up? Thank you for chatting with me and uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. All right. Great, Andrew. Th- nice talking to you as well. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.